Greetings, one and all, and welcome back to the Sassanac Files. This is Chelsea, and I will be walking you through today's episode where we are going to be talking about 202, Not in Scotland Anymore, written by Ira Stephen Bear. And this was actually a really good episode. It's probably one of my favorites of season two, and I'm excited to talk to you guys about it. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you guys that you can find us on all sorts of platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We just found out this week we've been approved for Amazon Music, so you can find us on there, as well as TuneIn, which is what Alexa uses on the Amazon Echoes and the Amazon Dots to pull music and podcasts from. So you should just be able to say, Hey Alexa, play the Sassanac Files and you can listen to our latest episodes. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Like and follow on those two platforms to make sure that you get the latest and greatest news about the Sassanac Files. Also, if you haven't had a chance, you might head over and check out the Sassanac Files blog. I just posted a entry about five adaptations that made me squeal which is basically just my account of several book to screen adaptations that I was super excited about over the course of my formative years, including things like Twilight and The Hunger Games. So head on over, check it out, and there might be something new on there that you haven't watched yet that, you know, you might find interesting or fun during this time when so little new entertainment is available. But exciting news on that front because... Tim Downey and Stephen Cree both announced that they started back to their respective filming projects this week. And it appears that Sam Hewen and Graham McTavish are working on a second season of Men in Kilts at the moment. So fingers crossed that we will soon see production begin on season six of Outlander. And as soon as I hear anything about it, I will make sure to post on social media and probably put it on the blog. But with all of that out of the way, I think we can move into the episode analysis on 202, not in Scotland anymore. And that was such a fitting title. And I love the Wizard of Oz reference because Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) And I feel like all the characters are really just on a whirlwind for the majority of this episode. We see it straight from the beginning when Claire is having issues adapting to running a great house. And her maid is like, why do you insist on making your own bed and folding your own clothes? Like, that's what I'm for. And for a woman of your status and who's with child, you don't need to be doing these things. And Claire's like, I'm sorry, it's just habit. I'm not used to having people around to do everything for me. So there's that. And then she kind of gets annoyed when her equerry is like, Madame, your carriage awaits. And she's like, of course it is. It seems like there's always somebody right on her heels to do something for her. Probably even wipe her own butt, which is probably what she's thinking. I'm like, they would wipe my ass if I asked them to. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so that's kind of the state of mind that Claire is in. And Myrta, I think, is probably the embodiment of everybody's frustration in this episode, because all he wants is to be in Scotland. And he's so salty that he's in France. I mean, we saw it a little bit at the end of the season two premiere when he was like, 
this port reeks of frogs. And now he's extending that even further. And he was like, this city reeks of the chamber pot and, you know, arses and armpits. He just doesn't want to be there. And he doesn't make any excuses about his dislike of France. I think that he was really used as a mouthpiece for everybody else's internal feelings. Murta just says it, which was really great. And then, of course, Jamie, I think, is probably adapting the best out of any of these guys because it's not really touched on in this episode, but he lived in France for a while. And we do kind of see it a little bit when Annalise shows up at Versailles and she just launches herself at him. She's like, oh, Jamie, my petit sauvage, you know, Claire's like, who the fuck is this? You know, and uh, Jimmy's like, uh, Annalise, this is my wife. <laughs> Katrina did such a good job in that moment of all the little marital looks. She's not saying a lot, but her eyes and her face are saying everything. She's like, uh, Jamie, you better explain who this tramp is right now. And why is she hanging on you? And oh, you fought a duel for her? Like, funny, you never mentioned that. You know, just all of these things. It was a really hilarious scene. And this episode in general had a lot of hilarious scenes. And I think that all comes down to the writer. Ira Stephen Bear wrote this episode. And his episodes of Outlander over the course of season one and two are some of my favorite episodes of the entire series. He has this great way of combining humor in with the drama. And it doesn't take away from either one it's very cohesive and his character work is fantastic he just did a great job overall the dialogue seems so natural he's really in touch with these characters in the best way and I just love his episodes and something else that I honestly love not just about this episode but about all of the Paris material in general are the sets and the costumes. So hats off to John Gary Steele and Terry Dressbach. They did a phenomenal job. And I know that it was extremely time consuming. And they even started working on season two stuff while they were still working on season one, because they knew that it was just going to be this massive undertaking. And I feel like they did a fantastic job. So hats off standing ovation to them the whole nine yards because it really was just some of their best work. Speaking of costumes, let's take a moment to talk about Claire's costumes because I think I've said it before, but I am just such a girly girl. I love dresses and makeup and accessories. So I am in heaven every time I watch any of the Paris stuff. I don't really care for the political intrigue and the the plot of the Paris stuff in season two, but... If you take a step back from that and are just looking at the costumes, for me, that makes it all worth it. And the red dress in this episode was one of the most anticipated costumes of season two. I think it was a real standout piece in the book. And there was a lot of like, oh, what's it going to look like? So I thought it was pretty genius because it is a dress that doesn't require a corset or a bra of any kind, which was just whoa and you see that reaction in Jamie right he's like 
Christ, like I could see every inch of you right down to your third rib. <laughs> and she's like, no, you can't stop being dramatic, you know? <laughs> so I thought it was really great. And of course, that scene is coming off the heels of where Claire has had a Brazilian wax and waxed her legs. And that shocks Jamie too. She does it because they're having problems in the bedroom, right? Because of what happened at Wentworth, Jamie just gets triggered every time they try to have sex. And so she's trying to give something to him to distract him and make it different is what she says. I just wanted something different. And he has this great line where he says, you're a very daring woman, Sassanac. I suppose that makes me a lucky man. So he appreciates what she's trying to do. But at the same time, it's just so terrible. Like Jamie's PTSD really comes to light in this episode. Yeah, that first scene where he's dreaming and you kind of by the lighting, you know that it's a dream. And then Claire becomes Blackjack and you're really in Jamie's head because that was one thing in the season one finale that Jack manipulated Jamie in his compromised state into believing that he was Claire. Well, now that connection still exists somewhere in Jamie's head. Yes, he knows that Claire and Blackjack are two very separate people, but that fear and that horror at what happened in Wentworth is still there for him. And all he wants, all Jamie wants is to take his frustration out on Jack, but he can't because he's dead. And I think Claire thinks that she's helping when Jamie wakes up from his nightmare saying, Jack Randall's dead. And she's not because I think there's this key piece of information that she's missing in that, yeah, Jamie in a lot of ways can take comfort from the fact that Jack is never going to harm another person, but he also doesn't have anything to take his horror and frustration out on either. So it's kind of this double-edged sword or catch-22, whatever you want to call it. So I feel like it's not as comforting of a fact for Jamie as Claire believes it is to say that Jack Randall is dead. So in that scene, we just see Jamie wrap his plate around himself and be like, you know, I'm not getting any more sleep tonight, so I guess I'll go balance the checkbook, essentially. Yeah, when he wraps his plate around himself, that was the only moment that I really saw Jamie struggling to adapt to Scotland in the same way that Claire and Myrta are. Jamie's just more quiet about it, you know? And I really feel like for Jamie, it's more a longing for home than it is being dropped into this world. But for all of them, I really did feel like they were just in this twister and tossed about and then plopped down on this alien planet and expected to cohabitate. You know, that's really the vibe that you got. It was very Wizard of Oz, this entire thing. The parallels were great. I really love that portion of it. One thing that really sticks out to me about this episode is the sheer amount of new characters that we meet. So I'm going to break this down into two categories because I feel like that's kind of important to understanding the significance of these people. So the first group that we meet is... Claire's new friends. We meet Master Raymond, who is this very unique individual. He's kind of off kilter and he's this very tiny frog-like individual is how he's described in the book. Like he reminds Claire of a toad 
she even makes the remark like, oh, have you kissed any princesses lately? (laughs) um, So, yeah, that got left out of the show, but it was a cute little conversation between the two. Claire and Raymond really get off to a good start. They bond. They have a similar sense of humor and they bond over their shared love of herbs and their medicinal purposes. They're both highly intelligent people and they're both enemies with the Comte Saint-Germain. And Raymond has this great line. He is like, well, no, I'm not friends with the Comte Saint-Germain. He says, you call us rivals. A pleasant term for enemies, is it not? And then he said, and since you're his enemy as well, that must make us friends. And that gets a smile from Claire. And their friendship over the course of their time in Paris really is interesting. There's this sense of trust between the two. And their friendship certainly has its rocky points. But there's also an extreme sense of loyalty between the two. Raymond is an intriguing character within the Outlander verse anyway. He's getting his own book from Diana Gabaldon. There's a lot going on that possibly isn't even touched on in the show. He's got a very interesting story, this Master Raymond. And I'm anxious to find out what that story entails because Diana Gabaldon doesn't do anything the boring way. Let's get that straight. So that's Master Raymond. And then, of course, we met Princess Louise as well. Princess Louise de la Tour, Marquis de Rowan, is a real person, was French nobility, and was raised kind of in that world. She knows everybody. She's never wanted for anything in her entire life. So um, we see it later in the show. She's kind of naive in a lot of ways. And I think that she's a lot deeper than people give her credit for. But at the same time, like, she's very superficial. So basically a woman of her time. Things just don't concern her in the ways that they concern more worldly people. She's just kind of been shut up and given all of her dresses and all the shoes and all the accessories and given this lavish house and hosts all these parties and resides at court and yeah knows anybody who's anybody and I feel like she's an important friend for Claire to have because she makes sure that Claire is connected with the right people she makes sure Claire has great dresses and is very fashionable and can introduce Claire to anybody that Claire wants to know which is how Claire and Jamie get introduced to the Minister of Finance later in this episode because Louise knows who he is. And she even is the reason that they get to court at all. So Louise is a very integral character and she's a good friend to Claire. And we see that more as the season progresses as well. And then Mary Hawkins is the last little friend of Claire's that we meet. And she's probably around 15 years old at this point. She's just this little... Mouse of a girl, super tiny and skittish as all get out. And she's horrified of France. Like she just thinks that it's so vulgar and that she's tainting her own purity by taking any advice of Louise. And she can't believe that Frenchmen are the way they are. And poor Mary, she's in this arranged marriage to this terrible man that's like, twice her age maybe three times her age and um he's got warts all over his face and louise is like 
oh, but you're so lucky you're getting to marry this really rich man and you'll be French nobility and it's going to be great. And Mary's like not excited about it all. And Louise just can't understand, which is there, the dividing line right there between how Louise was raised and what's important to her and how Mary was raised and what's important to her. And Claire pities Mary so much. How could you not? I pity Mary, for goodness sake, to have an arranged marriage like that with someone who's not attractive that you don't know, like just for the money that I mean, which happened more often than not in uh, the 18th century, especially with people of a certain class. So it's pretty terrible. And I really feel for Mary. But The thing that really sticks out about this is that the name Mary Hawkins is familiar to Claire and Claire isn't sure why it's familiar, but that's kind of like the red flag going up that this person is going to be important later when Claire remembers how she knows Mary Hawkins. So uh, just like dog ear that section because we'll come back to it in a couple episodes But yeah, Mary is a very integral part to the future of this series. So very interesting that they introduced her um, right here. So the next group of people that need to be mentioned are the Versailles group. We have Annalise de Marillac, who was Jamie's old girlfriend, clearly has money. She's at court, so probably some sort of nobility. And she pops up a couple more times. She's not a major character, but we do meet her and it's a hilarious source of tension. So cool. And then we meet King Louis, who also not a massive character, but he's just kind of this figure in the background. He's very, the actor that they got to play him is very good. He's hilarious when he needs to be like the scene with the dressing of the king when king louis suffering from constipation yeah that whole scene when Marta has the line only in france does the king need an audience to shite so good and then you know when jamie's talking about porridge and how it's good for your digestive tract and the king's like i've never developed a taste for peasant food He's very good at that sense of entitlement, but also the hilarity of it. So that's him before he's out in front of all his subjects. And then he comes out where everybody's waiting on him. And he's the picture of nobility. And he's serene and regal. And Claire catches his eye. And there's just this moment where he his gaze hesitates on her. And then he bows his head and walks away. But that's your signal that something is up with that. And it's going to be like, it's going to be a thing. So just keep your eyes open. But Louis, he's a very charming individual. And this is how he was known throughout history as well. He's very charming and beloved by his people. But there is also this undercurrent of menace. He was very strong in the Catholic faith. And had this reputation for getting rid of heresy, anybody that believed in witchcraft or anything like that. You know, he didn't put up with any shit. He didn't pull any punches. So that undercurrent of don't mess with me is also there. So great job by this actor on playing the part of King Louis. And then we meet Joseph Duvernay at Versailles as well. Also a real person. He was the French minister of finance for a time. 
So he holds the purse strings for the country of France. He decides what is a good investment and what's not. And he has the ear of the king. So if you can get a message to Duvernay, you can get a message to the king. And this is kind of Prince Charlie's aim, right? So Jamie and Claire are at Versailles to talk to Duvernay. And Louise introduces them. (laughs) And freaking Duvernay, he thinks he's hot shit, right? So he thinks that Claire wants to talk to him because she wants a piece of this. And uh, Claire's like, what are you doing? Stop kissing my feet. Jamie comes up and throws him overboard into the creek or the pond or whatever it is. And this is the beginning of a long and lasting friendship. (laughs) Maybe not long or lasting, but it's certainly a friendship or a friendly business partnership at the least between Jamie and Joseph DuVernay. They become chess partners and they talk all matter of politics And it's really kind of a great way to keep the political intrigue of the season going without literally just giving a information overload. It's just peppered in there, um, which was really good, I felt, for the overall arc of the season. So yeah, this is where the seeds are planted for Joseph DuVernay. And then the last person that we meet at Versailles, we don't really meet him here, but he reappears, is the weasel Sandringham. The last time that we saw Sandringham, I feel like there was a lot of gray area for him. He really seemed like a weak backboned, head in the sand type guy who was very easy to manipulate. That's kind of the vibe that you get off of him in season one. And then in season two, he turns into this very calculated and manipulative villain. And don't get me wrong, like the hilarity that is the Duke of Sandringham is still there. And Simon Callow does a great job playing him. But the character has evolved. You see that he was much more a puppet master um, than he ever appeared to be in season one. And it just kind of gets worse and worse as this as season two progresses in the amount of manipulation and just menace behind this guy. It all comes to light in a way that I don't think anybody really expected. I certainly didn't expect it when I was reading the books. So it's very interesting for me. But I think the biggest thing that we get out of the reappearance of the Duke of Sandringham is we get this conversation between him and Claire, wherein she's pissed, right? Because when we last saw the Duke of Sandringham in season one, he was going to take Jamie's petition of complaint to the court of sessions and try to get Jack Randall expelled from the country, deported, sent to some West Indies hellhole, as Ned Gowan put it. So this was the goal. Last time she saw the Duke of Sandringham, And then come to find out the Duke actually gave the petition of complaint to Blackjack and it was destroyed. So lots of anger over this entire situation. Murta probably would have killed him on the spot had Jamie not stopped him. Nevertheless, there's this conversation between the Duke and Claire. Lots of mudslinging and sharp jabs. And the Duke says, oh, I see you're cultivating friends in high places. Basically, some things never change. That's just who you are. Claire was like, well, yeah, it's so funny that we're both here in France and on the same side, no less. 
because Claire and Jamie at this point are well-known Jacobites, right? They're in league with Jared and all of his cohorts, but they're also uh, on a first-name basis with Prince Charles Edward Stewart himself. So they're known Jacobites at this time. And Sandringham is still kind of flying under the radar. And Claire comes out and says, you know, it's okay that me and Jamie are Jacobites because, you know, yeah, we're British citizens, but we're in France and England can't touch us. Whereas the Duke of Sandringham is English nobility and he is very much within the grasp of the crown. And should they find out that he's actually funding a secret Jacobite cause, he would be considered a traitor to the crown and be sent to the Tower of London and possibly hung, drawn, and quartered. So there's that implication that Claire's giving him where she's like, yeah, I know that you're a Jacobite and don't cross me again because otherwise I'm going to let it slip to some very important people that you're on the wrong side. This is when the Duke kind of rears his head and was like, don't blackmail me. Like, don't even try it. It was really interesting for me and it made me wonder if the Duke knows what happened between Jamie and Jack or if he just knows that something went down. Jamie was rescued and Jack was seriously injured. I don't really know. It's very interesting. He certainly plays it like he knows that something happened. But whenever he reveals, he does it so like the way that the Duke of Sandringham is the best at where he's like, oh, here, I'm going to friendly introduce you to my new secretary. Oh, by the way, his name is Alex Randall. Yes, he is Jack Randall's brother. And Alex, why don't you tell them that you just got a letter from your brother the other day? Oh, yes, he's still alive. You know, like, he's so menacingly pleasant, but he knows that he just like rocked Claire's world. She's like, fuck. So it's very interesting, I felt that um, this shift that we see in the Duke of Sandringham and it literally like Claire gets this piece of information and it just shatters this resolve that she's had around herself. Thinks she's kind of put herself in a bubble. She knows that Jamie's suffering with the blackjack stuff, but he will eventually heal from it because she believes that Jack Randall is dead and he can't harm them anymore. So she feels a little bit of peace about it. And now she's just concentrating on getting Jamie back to where he can be in a good headspace. But when she learns that Jack is alive, she's like, oh, shit. Because she has this terrible feeling that if Jamie knows that Jack's alive, he's going to drop everything, quit their cause here in Paris, get on the first ship back to Scotland and kill Jack Randall and possibly get himself recaptured and hung. So she has these terrible thoughts running through her head as to what's going to happen. And it causes a rift between her and Jamie for a lot of the next episode while she debates on whether or not she's going to tell him what happened. So it's very interesting that the Duke shared this with her. And like, I think just like Claire, the audience is like, oh my God, this cockroach just will not die. Good grief, can't catch a freaking break. So, yeah, it's certainly a very interesting plot point, and it should be interesting to see how it plays out in the long run. The last thing that I wanted to talk about, and I know I'm kind of doing this out of order, I really wanted to talk about Jamie's meeting with Prince Charlie. Because this meeting with Prince Charlie is critical to the remainder of the season. 
Season two is all about the Jacobite Rebellion and who's at the center of the Jacobite Rebellion? Charles Edward Stewart. So Jamie goes into this meeting with Prince Charlie with one purpose and one purpose only to deter Prince Charlie from going ahead with what will later be known as the 45. Charlie is a very, he's a lot like Louise in a sense, because he's been raised in a life of privilege, given everything that he ever wanted, and never heard the word no from anybody. He also has a very tense relationship with his father. Tense would be putting it lightly. His father does not really like Charlie. (laughs) And so I think a lot of the 45 was Charlie expressing his daddy issues, because the 15 was James's attempt at grabbing the English crown for himself. And when that fell through, he kind of just let it go. And then Charlie picked up the mantle and went through with the 45. And I think that Charlie felt that if he could win the English crown for his father, that would somehow mend the bridges between them. So that was really interesting to kind of see Andrew Gower portray over the course of season two. But one thing that I really felt was probably more important than any of the other circumstances put together was that Charlie truly believes, as most monarchs did in the day, was that their right to rule their subjects and their country was given by God and that there was only one true king for the throne and everybody else was a pretender. And That was the belief of the Jacobites. They believed that James and his descendants were God's choice to sit on the throne and that King George and his sons were pretenders. They were heretics. They didn't belong there. So that was basically the entire catalyst to the Jacobite rebellion. And when Jamie comes in, He's been highly recommended to Charlie by Jamie's cousin, Jared, who Jamie had no idea, personally knew (laughs) Prince Charlie. He figured he knew some of the higher ranking people that knew Charlie. But yeah, turns out Jared was a lot farther in the upper echelons of the Jacobite leaders than he originally thought. When Jamie and Charlie first meet, Charlie says... You know, I don't need another sycophant. I don't need somebody that's going to tell me what I want to hear. I already have enough of those in my circle. I need somebody who's going to tell me the way of it, the truth. I need the truth. And so Jamie obviously is going into this meeting knowing that he's trying to dismantle the Jacobite rebellion. You know, yes, there is some Jacobite support at this point, but it's not... 100% the entire country is unified behind Charlie. And even at the time of the war, it wasn't like that. If it had been like that, they probably would have been far more successful. But even in the lowlands of Scotland, the Jacobite rebellion had far less support than they were hoping for, which was a major reason why it failed as they moved into England. So that was a huge thing for Charlie. And Jamie's like, okay, well, maybe I can have it both ways. Maybe I can be honest with this guy and deter him at the same time. So he tells him, look, the clans aren't united. They're never going to be. And this is a bad idea. Like, it's just a bad idea. And this is when we start to see the version of Charlie that I absolutely 
hate. Like he's probably one of my least favorite characters of the entire Outlander series because he's so thick-headed and he only wants to hear what he wants to hear. Well, he's God's chosen one, so the rest of it doesn't matter. And it's like Murta says later, he was like, he needs to be stopped or he's going to get us all killed. Which is exactly what Claire's been telling Jamie for the past however many months. So it's interesting that they see that right away with Charlie. They just, Jamie and Murta during this whole interview are just kind of sharing side eyes as Charlie goes on. But Charlie really reminds me of a child in some respects. When Jamie makes a comment, he's like, well, we don't want this to end up like the 15, which is the Jacobite rebellion that Charlie's father, James, put together and that Jamie's father fought in. So he's like, yeah, we don't want a repeat of that. And Charlie's like shaking his fists and rolling his eyes. And he's like, but I wouldn't repeat the mistakes of the people before me. Yes, you would, Charlie. Yes, you would. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, it's like Charlie's just repeating this mantra saying, you know, above all, a leader has to be decisive, but he doesn't really know how to be a leader. He's just a child. And he's got people pulling the strings and making decisions for him this entire time. He's surrounded by people that are older than him by quite a bit. And I think that's why Charlie is so drawn to Jamie as the uh, plot gets thicker because Jamie and Charlie are very similar in age to one another and they can have more of a friendship in Charlie's eyes than he does with the other people they're more of his advisors. So it's very interesting, this relationship that Charlie and Jamie have. And I think it stems from this meeting that they have, wherein Jamie is 100% honest with Charlie. And whether he wants to hear it or not, he recognizes that Jamie is going to tell it straight. And so I think that's what Charlie values in Jamie the most moving forward is he can depend on his 100% honest opinion. And Jamie doesn't have to worry about not giving his 100% honest opinion because his 100% honest opinion is that this is a terrible idea. And that's the whole point of him and Claire being in Paris and trying to dismantle the Jacobite Rebellion. So very good. I really enjoyed that scene. Um, Really the entire scene in the brothel between Myrta's horror and sarcasm and Jamie playing the double agent for the first time. Really good. Really, really good. I I was excited to see that scene. And I think that brings me to the quote of the episode, which was what Jamie was telling Charlie in the brothel. He says, the truth of it is the clans cannot agree on the color of the sky, let alone set aside their old grievances and band together to fight the British. Because it's true, like more often than not, They're fighting each other. They've got so much bad blood between themselves. Like, they're constantly raiding each other's cattle or, you know, kidnapping somebody or killing some other person. So, yeah, it's ludicrous to think that they could set aside their differences and unite against one person. And that's what Jamie's trying to tell Charlie. And Myrta knows that that is also the case. Yes, there's a lot of support but not near enough of the support that they need. So that's kind of the basis of the rest of the Jacobite movement over the course of Outlander. And I really liked that. I also liked Murta's quote in this scene 
where he said, Scotland is a beautiful country. It's glens, it's lochs, it's mountains. We're a people of the land, a simple people with no great love for outsiders. We'll fight, have fought each other more than not, but you ask us to shed our blood for what? Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know you. You've never even been to Scotland. Why on earth should I drop everything and risk my life and my family to fight for you? So I think that it kind of maybe opens up Charlie's eyes in a lot of ways. He needs to get his shit together if he expects any support to be forthcoming from Scotland. Which leads me into my performance of the episode, which was Duncan Lacroix. I thought he did a phenomenal job this episode. He was so hilarious. So many understated moments. The looks like when they were in Versailles and the king and his mistress walked past and she had the swan brooches around her nipples. And the fact that he just like could not stop staring like that was absolutely hilarious. Uh, Similar moment when Jamie had to smack him when he was staring at Claire in her red dress. Basically this entire episode, he was just so understated. His one liners are great. He's a great source of comedic relief for an otherwise very serious point in the show. So I really, really loved him in this episode. He He's so good. And Myrta is so supportive of Jamie and everything. And Duncan really does a good job portraying that father figure for Jamie. Yes, definitely my performance of the episode. All right, guys. Well, I think that about wraps up our discussion on season two, episode two of Outlander, not in Scotland anymore. Really enjoyed this episode a lot for like a million different reasons. It was really the show firing on all cylinders, I felt. If you have any questions or comments about this particular episode, feel free to shoot an email to thesassanacfiles at gmail.com or comment on the episode thread that will be posted when this episode goes live. If you guys have any thoughts or comments about the next episode useful occupations and deceptions make sure to message me on social media or send me an email to have your thoughts aired in the next episode of the sassanac files until next time guys stay safe out there and i will chat at you later have a good one